if you if you serve only the general public, the art public will abandon you. If you serve only the art public, the general public won't bother with you because there are many other things for them to do. If you're following contemporary art in the United States, then this week's guest should be no stranger to you. Christopher Knight has been a Los Angeles-based writer for the last 40 years, most famously at his current position as the art critic at the LA Times. He's read by art lovers the world over. And this year, he was awarded two special honors, the Rabkin Lifetime Achievement Award for Art Journalism and most recently, the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism. I'm Harag Bartanyan, the host of the Hyperallergic Podcast. So I reached out to discuss his life as a leading critical voice in one of the world's hubs of contemporary art. My first question, how did he get started as a critic anyway? It was a complete accident, as I think most uh, most critics end up becoming critics by accident. I don't know how it was for you, but it was certainly that way for me. I had um, I'd gone to graduate school and studied art history, and my ambition was to work in a museum. And I ended up working in three different museums, and in the course of that, discovered a number of things that I really liked about doing it and a number of things that I didn't like at all. And the thing that I didn't like at all was that uh, you spend an awful lot of time away from works of art when you work in a museum. There's just so many other things uh, involved. And I felt like I wasn't, uh, I wasn't spending the time with art that I wanted to spend. And so when I retired from the museum world, just sort of, uh, you know, I didn't have a job to go to at, at that time. I decided to... Uh, you know, pitch a couple a couple things to Art Forum, and I wrote a few back of the book reviews. And I was at at that point, I had moved to LA. This was in 1980. In the in the uh, summer of 1980, I moved to LA from La Jolla, from San Diego. I was a curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego. So, and I had been spending more and more time in LA when I lived in San Diego. And if you lived in San Diego, you'd understand why. Um, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful place to live, but Culturally speaking, it's fairly limited. And around 1980, um, L.A. was just a really interesting uh, place to be. So I found myself spending more and more time in L.A. So I ended up moving there, and I had enough money to live for, for about six months before I had to panic. So I wrote a couple <laughs> back-of-the-book reviews, and one day in the fall, I got a phone call from... Uh, the LA County Museum of Art, and they had a job opening in the public information office as assistant director for public information, and was I interested? And they said, sure. So I worked there for a year, and near the end of that time, I've been very lucky with phone calls. The phone rang again, <laughs> this time in my office, and it was an editor at the Los Angeles Herald Examiner which was the other newspaper in town. The, uh, the Herald had been around at that point for about 90 years. It was the Hearst newspaper, one of the two newspapers that Citizen Kane is based on. And they said, listen, we're looking for people to write about art for us, and we've been given your name. Would you be interested in writing some things? And I said, well, 
Um, yeah, why not? I, you know, I'd be, I'd be happy to, to give that a try. They gave me a couple of assignments. I did those. And for a couple of them, I sort of figured out that what they were actually doing was auditioning. And they offered me a job, a full-time job. Um, well, someone had given them uh, some, my name, someone who worked at the, the county museum who knew uh, this particular editor. It was an editor who had been at the LA Times uh, for a long time and then had, uh, towards the end of his career, had jumped over to the Herald. The Herald was a really interesting place because the newspaper had been a very conservative Hearst paper for a very long time. And there had been a union strike and the Hearst Corporation tried to, to bust the union. And the strike went on for more than 10 years. <laughs> and the strike wow. pretty much decimated the newspaper. But at the end of it, the Hearst decided they were going to make one last push to revive the Herald. And so they commissioned uh, market research analysis. This is what an editor explained to me. They commissioned a market research analysis, not of the Herald, but of the LA Times, to find what areas readers in Los Angeles felt the Times was weakest in. And there were three areas. One was local news, one was sports, and the other was cultural affairs. So the Herald decided they were going to put all their eggs into those three baskets, making a completely schizophrenic newspaper. But yeah, one quite an interesting mix. <laughs> yeah. One, one that was a whole lot of fun to work for, I must say. And when they offered me the job, I said, well, this sounds really interesting. And I've enjoyed, you know, doing a couple of freelance pieces for you. But you have to understand, I don't know anything about journalism. And the editor said to me, well, that's okay. We don't know anything about art. <laughs> so we'll, <laughs> we'll explain journalism to you and you can explain art to us and things will be fine. Wait, he said he was a curator before, right? I had to ask. It was mostly um, mostly helping the existing curatorial staff. I, I, I was in La Jolla for three years, and as we know, it takes uh, it takes two years to put a show together. So when I first got there, the first thing I did was install an exhibition of drawings and collages for Christo's Running Fence Project in Northern California, which was just going up. This was in 1976. So that was the first, uh, the first thing I did. But that was a show that was pretty much assembled prior to my arrival, and I just had to install it, basically install and deinstall and all of that. You know, I worked on a lot of, uh, a lot of planned exhibitions, you know, sort of helping with that. And I then initiated an exhibition with Eleanor Anton, who, um, who lives in San Diego, who's taught at UC San Diego for a very long time. And I did, a, I did a show with her called The Angel of Mercy, which was her photographs, cutouts, and performance based on Florence Nightingale in the Crimean War. And in the process of doing that, I had also begun work on an exhibition that the working title was Video Fields, and it was about the transition from single-channel video into video installation. But Got that it. never came to fruition but, because I left. But how did you get into curating? Was that your first passion or was it sort of another kind of fell into scenario? Uh, fell into? <laughs> when I went to, when I went to, I, my whole life is a series of accidents. When, <laughs> Good accidents, when I to, right? 
when I went to graduate school, the, you know, my, my plan was to, to get my PhD in art history and to teach, because what else can you do with a PhD in art history? So I set out to do that, and I was going to go to school at the State University of New York Graduate Center at Binghamton. I wanted to work with a professor named Albert Boehm, who was one of the people in the 70s. This was in 1974, I believe. He was one of the people, one of the art historians who was instrumental in the revisionist history of 19th century French painting. And I wanted to work with him. So I applied there mid-year. I got there and discovered that he had gone on sabbatical for a year. <laughs> so I was there with, oh, no. with no one to work with. <laughs> and so I... I went through the you know the first semester and I was standing in in the hallway waiting for a class to begin. I was a, a teaching assistant too, and I was waiting for a class to begin. And on the bulletin board there was a, an ad for a fellowship program in museum studies at the Toledo Museum of Art in Toledo, Ohio. And I thought, you know, and it started the following fall and it would take a year. And I thought, well, I I want to be gone for a year because I want to wait for Al Poem to come back. So I applied for it and got it. So I moved to Toledo, Ohio and worked at the Toledo Museum for a year and found it really interesting. And I thought, hmm, maybe, maybe museums would be a more interesting thing to do than teaching, because when you're teaching, you're around slides all the time. Remember, this was the 70s, course, so yeah, people still it. use slides. You're on slides all the time, but when you're in your museum, my gosh, there's actual art on the walls. So when I was finishing graduate school, I did all my, you know, my coursework, my exams, my doctoral stuff, and was about to begin work on a dissertation. And another phone call, <laughs> phone call, this was in March of 1976. I got a phone call from Los Angeles from Stephanie Barron, who's the curator of modern art at the LA County Museum. And she had been a fellow in Toledo the year that I was there. And she said to me, you know, there's, she said, I've been thinking there's a curatorial job open in La Jolla. And I think you'd be perfect for it. You should apply. And I said, Stephanie, I'm not looking for work. I've got this uh, research grant and dissertation. I know what I'm doing for the next year. And she said, listen, it's March. You're in New York. I'm sure the snow is, you know, four feet deep. You've never been to California. Apply. Maybe they'll bring out for an interview. At least you'll, you know, you'll come to Southern California, where I'd never been before. And so I applied. Um, sure enough, they brought me out for an interview. I got off the plane at LAX, and the city just smacked me in the face. It was like, wow, this is like, this was the most amazing thing I'd, <laughs> I'd seen in the United States. Los Angeles might be his home today. But that's not where he got started. I grew up in a small town in western Massachusetts at the foot of the Berkshires, a town of 20,000 people. No art museum in the vicinity. In fact, I never never really went to a, a serious art museum until I was 17. So I didn't have a, uh, I didn't have a, a youthful experience uh, with art except, except for reading and looking at pictures in the library and things like that. Well, 
it did take 40 years. So it wasn't all of a sudden. But, and I have been very fortunate. I mean, I had been a finalist for the Pulitzer three times in the past. So I had sort of given up on the possibility that that might ever happen. But no, it wasn't, it wasn't something I ever planned. It wasn't something I ever, you know, laid out into the future. It, it was really when I started working for the Herald feeling, just feeling like this is what I want to do. This is right. It just felt completely right. And it felt, it felt in, in one respect, like, you know, if the people who ran the Herald ever found out what it is I did for a living, they'd probably get rid of the job. I mean, they were actually paying me to go look at art and think about it and write about it. Who does that? Nobody does that. One of the things that I did in figuring out how to be a newspaper critic was pay attention to both the New York Times and the LA Times. And since the market research had shown that readers in LA were dissatisfied with the LA Times, I tried to take notes on what not to do. And since Hilton Kramer was the critic for the New York Times and was incredibly influential, I knew part of that was because of the newspaper. But it was also partially because Hilton really understood how journalism worked and how to use journalism. And I paid attention to how he did what he did. And I would take that information and throw away his opinions, many of which I found to be horrific. So it wasn't the content of what he was writing as much as it was the structure of how he was doing it. Um, and I began to, you know, to try and apply those things to, to my own writing. And eventually when the, when the Herald, after I guess I'd been there nine years, uh, when it folded, uh, when it went under finally, and I jumped over to the LA Times, I was in somewhat of a pickle because, because suddenly I was working for the for the paper that I had developed my writing on by not by doing what they <laughs> didn't do. So what's a newspaper art critic anyway? I know it seems like an obvious question to many of us, but I wanted to hear it from him. I tend to I tend to use my own experience as the platform for figuring out how I'm doing what I'm doing. And I also read a lot of Oscar Wilde. And there's an essay of Oscar Wilde's called The, the Critic as Artist. Every September, but when the season starts, I reread that, I reread that essay. Um, I mean, it's a brilliant essay. I don't blame you. It's, yeah, well, he's, he's an, incredible, uh, an incredible writer. I mean, one of the things I learned from him, even more than from Baudelaire, from Baudelaire, I learned, uh, I learned to be on the street. And from Oscar Wilde, I, I learned that criticism is about writing. So the experience I had before I went to the Herald was in museums, was in art museums. And one of the things I learned in art museums is that there are two audiences to be served. There's a general public you know, who may or may not come to the museum, who you'd like to come and introduce them. They don't have background. They don't have, you know, footnotes when they're looking at paintings and so on. So there's a general public, but there's also an art public. And the art public is informed in one way or another, either as, uh, you know, amateur enthusiasts all the way to professionals in the field. And the art public also has to be served. If you, if you serve only the general public, the art public will abandon you. If you serve only the art public, the general public won't bother with you because there are many other things for them to do. 
So I began to apply that to newspapers, which are pretty much the same thing. I'm a special interest writer the same way a sports columnist is a special interest writer. And when I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, a football fan, but if I read a football column, it's clear to me that whoever's writing that really knows what they're talking about. I may not understand the terminology they're using, but they do. And they're explaining enough that I can follow the story, I can follow the column. And I thought, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do for art criticism in a newspaper. I'm not going to assume that I have to define impressionism any time I use the word. Um, I'm not going to talk down to the readers. And I'm also always going to be aware that somewhere in the readership is a reader who knows a heck of a lot more about this subject than I do. So the prescription I gave myself was to try and write in a conversational tone and approach it that way. And it, it seems to work. I asked him if he was the only art critic covering the L.A. scene at the time. I mean, there certainly weren't many. I, I was the only one at the Herald, that's for sure. And there was a magazine called the Leica Journal. Leica was the L.A. Institute of Contemporary Art and the Leica Journal. Leica was an artist-run space and the Leica Journal was an artist-run uh, publication. And I wrote some things for them. Um, and there were, you know, people contributing to LA Weekly, which was the weekly newspaper. And there was a California publication called Art Week. And so, that, you know, there were people around. Most of them were writing for, for specialized journals, though, uh, writing specifically for an art audience. And there were only a couple of us writing for newspaper readers. Did the L.A. art scene welcome him in those early years? Oh, yeah. It was very welcoming. People were happy about it. I mean, one thing I should also explain is the, aside from the market research study that the Herald had done and, and deciding to fill out its you know roster of, of critics, was that the art scene in L.A. was beginning to uh, explode, was beginning to take off. The Museum of Contemporary Art was on the drawing board in 1980. The L.A. County Museum of Art had announced that it was going to be building a separate wing, the Anderson Wing for Modern Art. And the big gorilla in the whole thing was that J. Paul Getty, who had died in 1976 and who had a very complicated estate, the estate finally went through probate and suddenly this weird little museum on the edge of Malibu was the richest cultural organization in the world. And the Herald didn't have anyone to cover what was happening. So given that all of these things were happening, there was a readership that was interested in reading, and they were very supportive and very enthusiastic about, about having someone write for another newspaper. So, so that was really nice. One of the questions I love to ask fellow art critics is, who are the other critics they were reading at the time? Well, as I say, you know, there's art criticism that's academic or um, trade art criticism or, you know, and I would pay attention to the magazines. I'd read the magazines and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, inside the white cube and on and on. And the sort of, I'm sure you could, uh, I'm sure you could recite the, the list of prominent critics at the time. But I also was interested in critics who wrote for a, a general public. And I followed Peter Sheldahl a lot because I thought he was, just as a writer, as a flat-out writer, I really liked 
uh, I liked his style. And I also read Robert Hughes in the 80s because you sort of had to. Yeah, he was super popular. Uh, he, was busy, yeah. he was busy creating neo-expressionism, much to his dismay. And he was creating it by writing, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, hateful, <laughs> outlandish things about it. And I thought, you know, I don't get this. Um, you claim to hate this stuff and you write about it constantly and just make it more and more popular. This is really weird. <laughs> Which brings up the bigger question. In the era of attention economies, I asked him what he does with really bad art when even negative reviews are being leveraged by artists and galleries to gain notoriety and make sales, not to mention build reputations. That's exactly it. I, yeah, I very often I will lean on the side of just ignore it. One of the peculiarities, and, and it's, it's still that way today, but one of the peculiarities is that in the 80s and 90s, one of the most important things that was happening in, the, in art was the internationalization of the art world. The idea that the United States was the center of art and that New York City was the capital was falling apart. Partially it was falling apart because of the rise of Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles and Germany at that time, and then later London, and then later Asia, and Latin America, and on, and on, and on. But it was coming apart at the seams, and I was in L.A., and I was watching L.A. in large, and I thought, if it comes down to, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, so many columns in the week. If it comes down to a choice between something that New York is obsessed with and something that's happening in L.A. that I think is really interesting, no choice. I write about the L.A. thing. And the New York thing goes by the wayside. And I think that did two things. One, one is that it, it sort of adhered me to the community in L.A., but it also made people, because of the internationalizing art world, it also made people elsewhere interested in what I had to say because I was writing about L.A. all the time. And so they thought, so if the question ever came up, oh, well, you know, what's this thing that's happening at Mocha? People would look to me to find out. People elsewhere would look to me to find out. So that was interesting, too. I've always wondered why Los Angeles became such a hub of contemporary art. Sure, New York is the capital of capital, and of course, with all the waves of immigration from Europe and elsewhere, it became a natural hub for that. But how about LA? Why did it form there and not, let's say, Chicago or Seattle or some other place? Well, that is an enormous question. The subject of my next book, which I will never write. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so maybe, maybe give us the elevator pitch of that book. <laughs> yeah, that, that <laughs> one, one thing that was extremely important was the abundance of art schools. Otis and CalArts, Chenard, which became CalArts, uh, Art Center, uh, UCLA, Pomona, all of the, the colleges, colleges and universities in and around here developed really strong art programs. And I noticed one of the things that was clear in the 80s was that a shift had taken place among young artists coming out of those art schools. In the 70s, for instance, at CalArts, John Baldessari would, uh, you know, the advice he gave to any student at CalArts was, get out of here the minute you graduate, move to New York. That was real advice he was giving? Yeah, sure. 
Okay. You know, if you want to have a career. I mean, John John understood. John, John was a guy, was this incredibly interesting artist who I was writing about a lot. At that time, he, he had no traction in New York. New York paid no attention to John Baldessari. His career was in Europe. He had, he had, he had nobody in L.A. knew who, who he was in the 70s. New York had no interest. But he was developing a really interesting career in Europe. So he just sort of, you know, jumped over the whole, <laughs> the whole uh, New York thing. And then once he became successful in, in Europe, it kind of backwashed into New York and L.A. So he, he was telling his most talented students, nothing will happen if you're here. Move to New York, see, you know, see what you, can have, what you can do and so on. And in 1979, I think it was 79, there was a young artist coming out of CalArts who every artist I spoke to said, this guy's incredible. This guy's astounding. And it was Mike Kelly. And Mike got the advice from John and said, no, I'm staying in L.A. I'm <laughs> staying here. Um, and he did. And he developed a career in L.A. and New York and you know, became this international phenom. And other artists, he showed that it you know, that an artist could be in L.A. and have that kind of influential, significant career. And more and more artists began to stay in Los Angeles. And these art schools kept, you know, feeding the scene. And artists here, there's a real community among among artists here because of schools. It, it doesn't mean it's all, you know, lovey-dovey and kissy-kissy, but it means that artists respect each other and pay attention to each other and um, try and one up each other and and all of that thing. And there are so many of them that the the scene here became really large and stable. I don't think that necessarily happens in other cities. Maybe it does, maybe I just don't know, but it certainly happened here. And I think it was extremely important. One of the things I've never understood though is why there were so many art schools. Was it Hollywood? Or like what was the reason that all those art schools were there in the first place? Hollywood had Hollywood had something to do with it. I mean, CalArts was founded by Walt Disney. <laughs> it was like it was Disney money that, that founded that. And you know, a guy like Ed Roche came from uh, came from the Midwest to LA to go to art school uh, with the assumption that he'd be working in advertising, working as a commercial artist. Lots of artists uh, prior to the war made their or to World War Two made their living in working for studios, doing set design and, and that sort of thing. So, so there's a long, a long history of that, but it got expanded into, into more serious endeavors, shall we say. I asked him about other responses to his stories, and boy, did he have a doozy. You mean like the hate mail I got from Charlton Heston, like that, Ooh, that kind of thing? Yeah. <laughs> that's one of the well, that's me. one of the fun things about about writing in Los Angeles. Tell me that yeah, what, what's strange, that? About? <laughs> strange people write. Well, there was this really silly uh, Andrew Wyeth exhibition. I don't even remember. I think it was the Helga paintings, but I'm not sure. You know, which was a whole scamorama, um, a, a really you know trumped up uh, excuse for a show, and I wrote a negative review of it. And I got a, a letter, you know, this is pre-email. I got a letter, a typed letter in the mail from Charlton Heston, who was just horrified that I would say anything unkind about Andrew Wyeth. And what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And, you know, sincerely, Chuck Heston. And I thought, well, that's weird. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I still have the letter. Did, today. did you I respond? Put it away. 
No, I mean, he, you know, he was venting. Right. right. So a couple of days later, I was at the office and the phone rang and I picked it up and it was Heston's personal assistant. And he said, Mr. Heston wants to know when you're going to be replying to him. And I said, well, Mr. Heston didn't ask for, didn't ask a question. He was venting. He was telling me stuff. He said, well, he expects to hear from you. I said, well, tell Mr. Heston that he will hear from me in a couple of days. I'll send something out today. Um, and he said, good. And we got off the phone and I put a piece of paper into the typewriter on my desk. Uh, and I typed a letter. Dear Mr. Heston, thank you for your letter, which I received this week. Sincerely, Christopher Knight. Los Angeles Herald Examiner, and I folded it and put it in an envelope and sent it to me. <laughs> the phone rang again, and he was really pissed off. Really? <laughs> it wasn't his personal assistant this time. It was him. I'm calling Randy Hurst. You know, my friend Randy Hurst. And it was like, ay, ay, ay. That was weird. Oh, that's, that's funny. What's his connection to Wyatt? Anything like, was there, did you ever figure out why he was so passionate about that one review? Well, he owned at least one painting by Wyatt. I don't know, you know, whether he was a major Wyatt collector or not, but I know he owned at least one. And, you know, and Anna Heston was a, a cracker barrel kind of, of Americanist. Who are you to make their lives bitter in hard bondage? Man shall be ruled by law, not by the will of other men. Sorry, I couldn't resist. I wanted to ask him about the recent frenzy over billionaires and art museums. Why? What the hell is going on? Well, at the risk of gross generalizations, billionaires have in the back of their minds Generally speaking, I became a billionaire because I know what I'm doing. So if I'm going to get involved in this institution, I'm going to run the place because I know what I'm doing. That's a problem for a public institution in particular. And when, you know, if, if you run into uh, said billionaire runs into obstacles, well, they can they can take their uh, their booty and build their own place at the same time. Boards of trustees at museums have become completely larded with corporate business people. There was a time I love when, that word. I love the word you use, larded. Lard. <laughs> I just want to take a second to to appreciate that. Go ahead. There was a time when when boards were, you know, had had a good number of philanthropists and intellectuals on them. I think one is hard-pressed these days to find an intellectual sitting on a board of trustees if you have. I mean, I, I wrote a piece recently, given the pandemic, I, I wrote a piece about the art historian Millard Meese, you know, whose field was uh, late Gothic art and had written this, you know, really influential book on the, the bubonic plague in Florence and Siena in the 14th century. Uh, and taught at Princeton, and just you know, just a major old-school art historian. He was a trustee of the Museum of Modern Art because he was a freaking genius about art, <laughs> not because he, yeah. you know, not because he had a billion dollars in the bank. Because he didn't. I I'm not aware of any museum in America today that has someone like that sitting on their board. Maybe they do. Maybe I'm just not been paying attention. And I understand that, you know, of course, museums need money and so on. Uh, but the arrival of a, of a whole class of business people onto boards, I think, 
pushed things in the direction of the paying attention to the bottom line of the institution that, well, why do we want to do this exhibition? It's going to cost us money. It's not going to bring people in at the gate. We're not going to be able to charge 1995 for people to come in, blah, 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 blah. None of which matters as far as I'm concerned. If you, you know, if you believe in the mission of the institution, then your one of your jobs as a trustee is to support that mission financially as well as intellectually. And if financially that exhibition can't be done, that's a pity. Do something else. It's not as if, you know, uh, that's the only exhibition there is. There's all kinds of things that can be done. Do something clever. Do something creative. I tried to do this. I mean, speaking of the 80s, one of the things I did at the Herald Examiner was this project that we called Newsprints, where I invited a number of artists to use a full page of the newspaper to make a print, to make a work of art. We kicked it off with David Hockney. This actually came out of a studio visit I did with him. And he, you know, the 80s art boom was on and prices were going up. And David was complaining, was saying, you know, I don't, you know, I have enough. I don't need to blah, blah, blah. People can't buy my art. I want people to be able to buy my art. And I said, well, how about how about if we use the presses at the newspaper and did a print in the newspaper and anyone could buy a David Hockney for 25 cents? He said, great. So we did. <laughs> and what, you know, what year was that? Oh, gosh. It was in the early 80s. I did one with him. I did one with Kim McConnell. I did one with Mike Kelly. Wow, I didn't know about a, that. That's great. Yeah, most people, most people threw away the art. You know, as I say, people throw away the newspaper. I kept it. I still have them. Then I brought up the topic of homophobia, because Christopher Knight is one of the most prominent LGBTQ voices in art criticism. I asked him if he'd ever been confronted directly with homophobia while he did his job as an art critic. Can you tell me a little I'm bit about American? How... Of course, I was confronted. Right? Exactly. So how did how does that how did that come up, or how did you cope with that? You know? I came out and I came out. Well, for one thing, I'm old. I came out in 1972. You know, so uh, and as you know, coming out is a never-ending process. You go to the you know, I was at the grocery store last week, and you know pulled out a, a credit card and w- was paying and there was something wrong. And I said, oh, uh, I, wait, I, ha- I have another credit card. And the cashier said, oh, your wife's? I said, no, my husband's. I just came out to the cashier. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Because right. in, a, in a, a heteronormative culture, the assumption is you're straight. And if you're not, well, you know, then you run into things. The, the, the most outlandish example came in 1982 after I'd been writing for a couple of years for the Herald, I was recruited by the New York Times. There was a really great uh, editor there, culture editor named Seymour Peck, Cy Peck. And when Hilton Kramer announced he was leaving the paper to start the new Criterion, Cy Peck approached me about uh, going to work for the New York Times. And this was with the support of John Russell, who was moving into uh, Helen Kramer's space and Grace Glick, who was the art reporter. And I didn't really want to do it because I loved living in LA and I was having a great time and found it really interesting. But when the New York Times calls, it's, if you're a journalist, it's like being drafted. You have to go. 
my husband had my now husband um you know had his own uh, his own job the company he worked for was based in new york but he was representing the the company on the west coast we went to new york we met everybody at the times went through all the interviews were looking for apartments blah 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 and the very last interview that i had to have was with the executive editor of the newspaper abe rosenthal and it was the day before we were uh, fernando and i were returning to la and I went in to Rosenthal's office and he was lying on the floor with his feet up against the wall. And it was like, uh, he said, uh, uh, pay no attention. I have a really bad back. Um, so I'm going to have to do this interview lying on the floor. And I thought, well, this is a really, you know, cheesy way to try and destabilize me. But hey, whatever, <laughs> run the place out there. Right. So, we, you know, we went through the interview and it was it was fairly brief. And um, he says, we'll be in touch tomorrow. Everything, you know, will be concluded tomorrow. You know, so I left and I went back to SIPEC and explained. He said, well, I know you're flying back to L.A. tomorrow, so I'll give you a, a call the day after and we'll take it from there. So we went back. Fernando and I came back to uh, Los Angeles and the next day came and the next day came and the next day came and there was no phone call. <laughs> I thought something's up. And then I got a message from SIPEC saying, we've run into a slight snag. I'll be in touch. Well, it turns out that Abe Rosenthal is notoriously homophobic. And at the after my, um, my interview with him, he only had one question, and that was, was I gay? And like most homophobes, he was a coward. He didn't ask me. If he asked me, I would have said, of course I'm gay. No one's right. Yes. But like most cowards, he didn't. He called Hilton Kramer. And Hilton said, well, let me find out. And when, of course, uh, you know, they learned that I was indeed uh, openly gay, the offer was withdrawn, and I did not become an art critic at the New York Times. Even though I've heard and experienced many stories like the one he just told, it never stops being shocking. For my final question... I asked him about misconceptions about the L.A. art scene he'd like to set straight. What were they? Yeah, probably the fact that in a market-dominated art culture, Los Angeles is not an enormous marketplace, is not a strike against it. It's a strike in its favor. Because I think the most interesting art always comes out when it's always comes forward when it is pushing back against something. And the market is such a behemoth now that there are artists here who who work against it, who, who try to find ways to either ignore it, go around it, use it like jujitsu and, uh, and so on. So that the... The market that exists here is way, way, it's like a hundred times bigger than it was when I started in 1980. When I started in 1980, I could probably see every gallery in LA in a day. Um, now so I how, can't how, many, how many were there at that time? Roughly? Oh, under 20, oh, wow. 15, maybe 15. Now I can't see every gallery in Hollywood in a day, never mind. Right. There are certainly more than 15 or 20 galleries in Los Angeles nowadays. Last time I checked a few years ago, the number was certainly over 100. And while critics aren't often lauded for their role, I think it's worth mentioning that Christopher Knight has helped the world to see 
that LA has and continues to be an important center for art. Being a critic can be a thankless job sometimes, but those of us paying attention definitely notice. A special thanks to Austin David for letting us use his track, Zuma. Check him out wherever you listen to music online. I'm Harag Vartanyan, the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and stay safe.